Thank you for tuning in to Talking Bay 94, the Star Wars podcast devoted to interviews with the cast, crew, and creators of a galaxy far, far away. I'm your host, Brandon Winerdy, and today I'm talking to Don Bees, who came on this podcast way back on episode 5. So if you haven't listened to our previous conversation, definitely give it a download to hear all about his incredible career, because this episode is me just asking the questions I wish I'd asked him three years ago. From Japanese Panasonic commercials, the 1988 Marin County Fair, the special editions and so, so much more. This is Talking Bay 94, episode 98, Don B's Returns. One thing that we didn't talk about three years ago <laughs> was your first introduction to Star Wars. Uh, we talked about you getting involved with uh, Lucasfilm and, and ILM, but we never really talked about your first experience with the movies. What was what was that like for you even, even way back then? The summer of 77 was this really big, like, watershed year for me. So I turned 16. I got my driver's license. So I had freedom to, you know, go anywhere. I got my first job. Star Wars came out. And then where I was working, they filmed the movie there, Brian De Palma film. All those things coalesced into that one year. You know, it was a span of, like, I, well, I turned 16 in April. My The job came along in June or something like that. The, Star Wars, I think that's around when I saw Star Wars. And then the movie at the, where I was working came along in August. So it was a span of five months or something like that. So it was, like I said, it was, a, it was a huge, it was a huge year for me. And the, I remember I, I went to go see the film because I saw it on, I think it was on the, I saw it on the cover of Time Magazine. For some odd reason, I had a, I had a subscription to Time Magazine for a year. I don't know why, but I remember having for one year a time subscription. So in, in December of 76, King Kong came out, the De Laurentiis King Kong right. came out. And and I was really big into apes. You know, I was going to, I love makeup and, and monsters, and, but, but particularly apes, you know, gorillas and that. So Planet of the Apes, King Kong, right. both King Kongs. So I went to see King Kong and that had a big spread in Time Magazine. It might have been why I got the subscription. I don't know. Uh, that, that had a thing. So then come the next spring of the following year they uh, they did the story on star wars in there and all i saw was a picture of chewbacca and i thought oh cool they got another ape in it i better go see it's another ape (laughs) movie and that's why i went but i didn't go see it right away i think it was like i said it was june or july i think i saw it and i was with some friends and uh we decided kind of at the last minute to go I remember it was like a Sunday and my friends had some friends over that they were driving home and they would drive us to the cinema. And uh, they had this old Volkswagen van, you know, bus van type thing. I, I don't think it topped more than 45 miles an hour. And we're on the freeway puttering along and all the cars are passing us up. And I'm looking at my watch. I'm thinking we're going to miss, you know, the movies. We're going to miss it. But then we, you know, we're getting closer. It's like, oh, we've got plenty of time. You know, about 15, 20 minutes before the movie starts, it should be fine. And uh, we got there. And of course, the line was out the door and it was sold out, you know, and they had dropped us off. And now we're stuck, you know. (laughs) Uh So we had to wait. And it's a Sunday afternoon. It's at a mall, but the mall was closed, you know, because it was Sunday afternoon. So there was nothing to do. So we had to wait for the, I think it must've been the next screening, which was until like six 30 in the evening. So we had to go find a telephone because of course, many years before cell phones call and tell everyone, you know, we're going to stay to the next one can and arrange a pickup at like nine 30 now. Right. So we, we went, walked around an empty mall out from the outside. We couldn't get in uh-huh. and had nothing to do. And then we, when we went back to the theater 
and it was myself and, and his little brother, my a friend and the little, and his little brother. And the little brother was like eight or nine. So we went and kind of sat in the lobby waiting for the, the show to, you know, begin or mm-hmm. to line up and somewhere when we were just sitting there and there's random people scattered around and somewhere at some point, probably about an hour before the movie was supposed to get up, start, somebody walked to like where you would go in to, you know, to the theater. And all of a sudden, everybody thought, oh, we're going in. So they all like rushed. And we like, oh, well, we better go. So we all got up and walked. And all of a sudden, like people must have been sitting in their cars or something because all, it, within five minutes, the place was packed. And there was people, you know, like jam packed in this in this lobby. And we're stuck in there. And now we can't move. And now we're standing there for an hour. You know, <laughs> right. we can't go sit down anywhere. We, we stood there waiting for like, it felt like I, it must have been an hour. I think it was a long time. I know I just, I, I don't know exactly, but it was a long time. Finally, it was time to come in. The other people were all, everyone was coming out, filing out of the theater. And then the ushers that were going to let us in, there were like three of them. And one of them says, okay, now there's like 300 of you and only three of us. Mm-hmm. Please be patient. Don't trample the little kids <laughs> and and we'll be going, you know, you'll be able to go in. So please don't rush in. <laughs> so so they started accepting tickets and we started, you know, filing in. And I remember somebody started going. You know, <laughs> and all of a sudden the the whole uh, the whole lobby was mooing as we were going, got into the theater and and finally sat down and um and so just that experience going up to it was was memorable. Uh, and then the movie started and it was it just blew us all away. Me more so, I think, than my friends. But um, but I, I just remember sitting there. The, the one thing that I, I, I remember very clearly thinking there, this is uh, when uh, 3PO is walking in the desert and you could hear the servo, Ars Arm servos moving. And I, I thought that was such a subtle thing. I had never heard that in a film before. I'm like, mm-hmm. who does that? Who would do that? Right. That who would who would think to put that kind of detail into it? And so they just for me, it was just this visual feast, and I just was smitten with it from that point on. I don't know how many times I saw it that that summer. Probably, probably at least a dozen times at various theaters. And one one time, one day, I just went and watched it like twice in a row. I just stayed in the theater and watched it. So. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a, a big it was a big deal for me. <laughs> I'm even now thinking about what we talked about, which was one of your first kind of hands-on experiences with with Star Wars was for the Marin County Fair and kind of putting that exhibit together. And we talked about it very briefly, but over the past few years, I've done a little more research into it, and I even found someone was selling like the blueprints for the exhibit or something, and I was <laughs> very I was very tempted to like pick it up. Uh, but I, I mean, for the people listening, what what was in there, and like, kind of what was the first? That was the first time really costumes were exhibited in that kind of public way for Star Wars, and and what was kind of the thought process, at least, to put it all together. So at the time, George George had already built. Uh, obviously, ILM had been at um, the facility where it was until I guess two thousand six, two thousand five, mm-hmm. or something like that, in San Rafael, which is just an industrial area, San Rafael. And then he had already built the ranch. Uh, and and he had another property called the Grady Ranch, which I believe he still owns. That was uh, just uh, east of uh, Skywalker Ranch, and it's mm-hmm. it's just east of Big Rock Ranch, which is where animation, where they mm-hmm. did Clone Wars and that. Right. And at the time, he was trying to get, uh, he wanted to move ILM, make a facility at, uh, out there for ILM on the Grady Ranch. 
and he was trying to uh, get as much support behind the move as possible. He was having a hard, hard time with the Marin County Board of Supervisors um, and, uh, and them just not allowing it because it, unlike the, the ranch, which is essentially just was office as ILM would have been uh, in a semi-industrial you know, uh, facility where there would be manufacturing and that there would be model making and there would be a lot of traffic. It had more traffic than, and, and, and Lucas Valley where, where, which is not named after George, where the ranch is located is a very sleepy little, you know, it's a little windy road, you know, that goes through. So he was trying to get the support of uh, the county behind him. And so I think ever since he was he had moved to Marin County and was a success with Star Wars, they had asked him to do something at the Marin County Fair or asked Lucasfilm to do to be present at the Marin County Fair. And I think they had done small things, not so much exhibitions, but they had supported it in many ways. But finally, they felt, well, this year, maybe this would be a good thing to get. We'll get the entire community behind us by doing this. So it was an incredibly, incredibly casual event, as it turned out. The lady that hired me for personal appearances at the time, Jeannie Niles, uh, she she had contacted me because I was doing I was doing our character appearances, and she knew that I I knew Star Wars. She wasn't a big Star Wars fan. She didn't really know it. Um, and and the models and everything. She um, so she asked me, and then Steve Golly as well from the model shop. Uh, to help kind of put together this exhibit. So I was suggesting things and, um, you know, that we should put together what we could do. Oddly enough, we couldn't represent, and it was going to be the archive exhibition. So it wasn't just Star Wars. So uh, oddly enough, uh, Indiana Jones couldn't be represented because that was, they were filming Last Crusade Mm. and like all the costumes and all the props and everything. Well, not all the props were were gone. So the only thing we, I think we, we were able to uh, show from that was the Ark of the Covenant. And only, th- only the Ark of the Covenant. Only the Ark yeah. of the Covenant. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, I think we had, uh, we might have had an indie jacket and hat. Mm-hmm. I, I, we might not have because uh, we had the oh, we had the matte painting from the end of oh, the nice. movie of Raiders. And then there was a lot of stuff that was still kind of at the time with the archives, the state of the archives st- stuff was still kind of packed, not so much packed away, but like, like in various stages of boxes and, and scattered about. So right. we didn't really know completely, at least I didn't know completely what we had. So there was the obvious stuff, the big models and um, some of the costumes. So we got together and we talked about it and we walked through the archives and kind of made a plan of what we wanted. And then those blueprints that you talked about, I remember the art director is an art director at ILM named Jim Pohl. Uh-huh. We brought in and he kind of laid it out for us and he drew the plans up and because I remember those plans very clear. <laughs> and uh, I helped, I helped not, I didn't physically do anything, but I said, oh, maybe we should put this over. And now Tucker and Willow had just come out or was mm-hmm. coming out that summer, I think. So we were able to bring in a Tucker That's great. Uh, automobile. Well, George had two and, and some stuff from Willow, which hadn't been, you know, really um, seen. Everyone was coming to see the Star Wars. To be honest. Right. So uh, we put together, we just, like I said, very casually over several weeks. And then, we went to the um, to the our, uh, Marin Civic Center where this was being put on, and uh, we brought in the ILM Stage Department, which you know top notch uh, bunch of uh, folks that uh, had we'd worked with for years, and um, they came in and set everything up. Uh, I, I'm trying, I think the Civic Center might have built like little flats and little, you know, partitions so that so that uh, things weren't 
touchable, but everything was exposed. Right. You know, there was, there's a couple of things that had been in cases already because of, for some other display or something. But, um, we had like all the, like the, for the big star destroyer and uh, Darth Vader's ship and all those and speeder <laughs> bikes. I mean, it was just sitting right out there, you know? And so we, we put this together and then some, somebody thought we should have like numbers with uh, descriptions and, mm-hmm. I think we made up pamphlets or something. And uh, and then they opened the doors. Now, mind you, to get into the fair was like 10 bucks or right. seven bucks, or it was relatively inexpensive. And immediately it became apparent that this was going to be insane. Mm-hmm. And because we had lines, we, we you know, uh, the fire department would only let so many people in the building at a time. And um, we had lines that were, that was a three to four hour wait mm-hmm. uh, for people to come in. And, and, and to make matters worse, it was you know, July. It was a July right. 4th weekend. Um, so the, the heat outside was, was getting stifling. So we had uh, vendors that came and were giving out, and Lucasfilm paid for a lot of it too, uh, free, free waters, free, you know, free um, mm-hmm. um, stuff to keep people cool and not, not dying. <laughs> we, we had a few people come in and like, you know, one kid came in just as he got in the door, he just vomited all over <laughs> Uh, we had other people passing out, you know, yeah. the fire department was constantly outside putting, uh, you know, taking care of people. We did uh, put together some, we grabbed some people that from ILM and Lucasfilm and we went out, myself included, walked the line as stormtroopers, you know, just to entertain the crowd. We had the the security was was simply a bunch of retired people. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, that right. was our security. They're just retired volunteers. And um and and I was kind of working. The, I stayed there, and I, I can't remember the the hours. It was like open from ten to ten or something like that. So it was it was a long period, or maybe ten to eight or 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 something. And I was there every day before it opened and after. You know, by the time it closed, so I was working the whole the, the thing the entire time. <laughs> and I remember being exhausted, constantly exhausted. And um, we had a couple incidents so for the most part 99 percent of the people were wonderfully behaved they were just amazed to see the stuff it right. was you know you walked in and it was there was uh, the walkers from empire strikes back and you know models of millennium falcon and we had a little booth set up so that's r2d2 and c3po you could walk in and pose with them it was a real r2d2 <laughs> a real c3po costume right. you walk up and put your arm around and take photos i mean I'm, there's probably tons of photos hundreds and hundreds maybe thousands of photos right. of people that would like that we got all sorts of coverage from from, from you know media and it, it spread throughout actually the country people were literally flying from all over in to see the thing we had people we had the farthest uh, somebody came was from germany a huge fan and it was funny talking to him it was my first experience with a rap and i was a fan but i wasn't a, that right. to that level and um and it was so funny talking to him because he had all these theories about the millennium falcon and why things were on the millennium falcon uh-huh. and and you know with those pods on the side and i said well i think those are the escape pods no he says they're not their escape pods he says because you know when they land on the on the death star they say the escape pods have already been jettisoned and they're still there so they i don't think they're the escape pods <laughs> he says I, what i think they are and he re- explained went on to explain there's some sort of nuclear accelerator particle accelerator that helps <laughs> feed the engines you know 
And and he says, so next time you see Joe Johnson, now mind you, I, Joe, right, Joe, right. Joe, I, I didn't know Joe Johnson. He said, next time you see Joe Johnson, if you can ask him if that's what he's thinking. And I'm thinking, I said to him, I said, I think he just put it on there because I think it'll look cool. You know, it looked right. right. I don't know. So, uh, so <laughs> it was like, it was my first experience with the fandom like that. And right. um, I, oh, I was getting, said, most of the people were, were well behaved, but there was one incident and in, where, um, there was a back door and somebody didn't want to wait. And he walked up to this little old lady, literally she was a little silver old, old lady who was our security at the back door. Right. And he walked up to her and he, he pulled up his sleeve and he had a knife in there and he looked at her. He says, you will let me in. <gasps> and, and she looked at him. She said, son, she says, it ain't worth it. You don't want to go to jail for this. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and he, he just, he just looked at her and turned around and walked away. <laughs> and then the other one was a guy dressed up. I guess he was working the rest of the booth somewhere. He's dressed up like Ronald McDonald. I mean, mm. he was, a, he was a fully authorized Ronald McDonald appearance character right and he walked up and I, I saw a commotion by the back door again and one of this our security let it you know called me over and there's ronald mcdonald and a couple of friends he says hey you know i just need to let me it's okay to let me in i go no he says all these people are waiting I said, you can't come in this way. he's well come i'm working the fair you know it's it's okay i said no so i had to turn ronald mcdonald away. <laughs> yeah so it was just uh, i think the I don't know what the reg, regular attendance is, but I know that within the five days that we had the appearance, the the exhibition, there was forty three thousand people came. Wow! Through. Yeah, it was a big hit, and because of uh, because of that, then all of a sudden the stuff that was literally sitting and rotting in the archives, you right. know, the, a, a warehouse wasn't really enough. they go, hmm, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should do something with this stuff, right. and, and maybe it's still valuable. And, and from that point on, uh, they they actively looked at. Um, you know, doing uh, legitimate uh, art installations or museum exhibitions right. and that. And they, they explored it for, for a number of years. And, and because at that point I was more involved in the archives, I was involved in some of those discussions. And I remember they, they went to approach, George, George wanted to approach, legit, approach legitimate museums. He didn't want right. to just do some like, you know, um, you know, temporary pop-up type thing somewhere he wanted to he wanted to approach a modern art uh uh pop culture type museum or modern i should say modern art right. museums and they were like they're saying it's pop culture we don't want it so they the interest in the, that exhibition launched them into looking at their own division of like um uh i don't know exactly what it was but because i don't think they knew it was like it was like an entertainment type venues that they mm. were looking at at creating um so it's starting to morph into that sort of thing interesting uh but uh, that ended up never really going anywhere but there was actually talk briefly uh again with some plans drawn up and artwork created for uh, a permanent exhibition space in Girardelli square in san francisco yeah. wow um and they, they had the they had the um the space picked out and, you know, mm -hmm. they were, like I said, there were blueprints and, and um, designs already happening for that. But again, that just never panned out. And I'm not quite sure why, yeah. uh, but it wasn't until 1993 that uh, a Japanese in, uh, investor who was specialized in high end, high end art exhibitions 
and also loved Star Wars, got together the funding and put together this huge exhibition that traveled throughout Japan. Right. And, uh, and that's that, that I think launched in July, July of 1993. And it went on for a, like a year and a half or so. Mm-hmm. So I went to Japan a few times with that. Oh, wow. Because then I know eventually the Smithsonian did Magic of the Myth and that kind of launched. And I ended up, I was eight or whatever. And we drove from Dallas to Houston when it toured in Houston to like see it. And so it's interesting thinking about like how nothing was ever seen. And then all of a sudden over the past 30 years, we've really been kind of lucky with it being on a relatively regular rotation around the world of all these different kind of props. And what I'd love to talk about, because again, we're talking about forward facing with, with the props and the maquettes and the ships, but then you, especially working in the archives and working in the archives during this time, like you said, where it wasn't really like, oh, we have historical artifacts. And I know the last time we talked, you mentioned cataloging a little bit more and like trying to like get it all under relative control when you when you first joined. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about that just because I love the archives. Um, and then maybe just dive into like your favorite pieces or like the pieces that people might not even realize are in there um, that you kind of got to, to deal with and, and control. Well, one of the things I think that a lot of people get surprised about or did get surprised about when I was there that what, what, the stuff that wasn't in the archives, like a lot of stuff from the original Star Wars, you know, Luke's original lightsaber, Obi-Wan's mm-hmm. original lightsaber, um, the, pretty much anything that's in the archives that was from the original film was something that ended up either being used in Empire Strikes Back and was able to be kept from that point on or was sent over for some pickup shoots for Star Wars for the original film. So like the land speeder, you know, that was that was there because they shot that down in Death Valley. Right. But uh, like Luke's costume didn't make it. You know, uh, uh, none, none of the pieces from the original. The only thing that, that I did ultimately find there was uh, his Stormtrooper costume that he wore. Um, and because they were slightly different, the stuff between Star Wars and Empire were slightly different. There's also one C-3PO costume that mm-hmm. I found that was pretty much complete. That was from from the original film. It had very, you know, it was built very differently. It was a real obvious that it was a different film, a different uh, uh, uh generation and then all the r2s that were built for star wars were there but yeah all these key props you know well hansel's gun you know those sort of things that was a actually um a rental prop mm-hmm. from from a prop house called bapti and um and they didn't you know they didn't they got they got all this stuff back but yeah when when i started there it was literally in a warehouse just up the road from ilm and it was kind of a catch-all on what it was, it was the back half of a building. The front half of the store, uh, the front half of the building was a, a paint store, mm-hmm. and, which is still there, the Kelly Moore paint store. But the whole back half of the building was one side of it was the arc, the model costume archives. And the other side of it was the film archive. And it was, um, it, it was where they kept all the, editing materials that they use for star wars and empire and i think mm-hmm. jedi as well and i, I think indian raiders and right. there's other stuff so there's a boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes and boxes of film uh elements that were yeah. just you know strewn about um I, ben bird i know had a like a little section there of his stuff uh oh. as well so they, they brought me in really to clean it out it was after the Marin county fair they like well may, maybe we should straighten this place up now right <laughs> And so I was, I was cleaning up and, and, and there were, like I said, it was this catch all. I would find boxes of stuff from Lucasfilm legal department, you uh-huh. know, that 
that was fascinating to go through because there was like cease and desist letters from people doing character appearances that, <laughs> as, with their own, you know, Darth Vader costumes. And uh-huh. there was the uh, Once Upon a Galaxy. Remember the Ar- mm-hmm. Alan Arnold uh, book? It was the original manuscript was there. Mm-hmm. And and it was fascinating because I loved that book when I yeah. when I when that came out, that was my favorite book. And and I knew it really well. And to see the actual original manuscript and see what kind of what they cut out, there was like mm-hmm. large chunks excised out of it. Uh, I also found he um, he had done matter of fact he talks about it in one of the chapters where he put a microphone on Irvin Kirshner during the carbon freeze scene. And he had he had uh, attached a, a cassette tape to him, and he just followed him around. Well, all the cassette tapes that Alan Arnold used to interview people, and that tape or that set series of tapes were in the archives. Right. And I just would like I popped them on, and I would just listen to them. So I would listen to these raw interviews with the different uh, actors and technicians, and and then listen to this this recording of of while they were shooting and rehearsing and hearing them talk. And, and I think the, the book, like I said, got, I wouldn't say it got heavily edited, but it got hev- edited sure. because it was a little too intimate. Right. There was probably some things that, you know, they didn't want, you know, it's all come out since, you know, like Carrie's drug use, you know, there, that was kind of a thing in there that she was sick again today. And uh-huh. uh, so that stuff got excised. So along with that package of information of that, that, this the manuscript was a series of memos that had gone back and forth between Alan Arnold, Alan Arnold's uh, agent, uh, Lucas, whoever was Lucasfilm Publishing at that point. Right. And Alan was not, he was like an old time, I believe, British publicist. He had mm-hmm. worked for 20 years or 30 years going into Empire Strikes Back. He was just appalled that someone would edit him. Hmm. You know, it, it, that, that was the gist of the, the, the <laughs> correspondence. It's like, yeah yeah it was just just like like how dare you um so that was fascinating to read so there's lots lots of really little bit of trivia like that that was in there and so like i said they started they asked to clean out uh the the prior the first archivist for lucasfilm was a guy named david craig who ended up doing it was he he worked in the library and he would do press releases for pr he was his jack of all trades and um he uh he did uh uh he 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 was handed the job of starting to organize. So he he didn't know anything about organizing an archive, and he uh, understood. He went and researched, you know, with the local museums uh, best practices and and learned about accession sheets, which is you know every every item needs an accession sheet that explains right. its, you know, it, it gives it a number, it gives it what a title, size, material, condition history, that sort of thing, um, and picture. And of course, this was mid 80s. So com- uh, personal computers were still not that popular at that point. Um, so he, um, you know, he, everything was on a printed little booklet, and he had started filling out some of these things. And he had a numbering system that that he had started. So when I came in, I, could, I started doing some of that. Uh, there was actually another woman, and she was working with me, she had actually been involved with the Lucasfilm fan club. In the early 80s but she only stayed there for a couple months and then i was doing the work on my own and we 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 continued to do it that way but then you know it's like this is we really need a computer so i was able to talk 
this is also in conjunction with this group that was going to be doing the the permanent exhibition of the mm -hmm. stuff in Ghirardelli and other potential exhibitions. So I was able to talk them into buying Mac SE. <laughs> it had a, a massive 20 megabyte hard drive. Wow. We got FileMaker 2.0, mm -hmm. and I had to learn how to create a database. So I created a, a database uh, for for that, the first database for it, and um, which was all fascinating actually to me. I, I love <laughs> figuring all that kind of stuff out. Right. And um, but then I, I remember hitting a wall with a database, and then realizing what I need was in a is a relational database. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, what's a relational database? <laughs> So that, and then, it, and then just so happened, I think FileMaker 4.0 or something was coming out and it was a relational database. Mm -hmm. So it's like, ah, so I, I developed, I designed my own, our own custom database and I continued working on it uh, mm -hmm. while I, until, until I was, until I left. But then we eventually moved in 91, 1991, we eventually moved, they, they built a, a, a proper facility up at Skywalker Ranch and we moved everything up there. And that was like a two week move. Which was which was interesting and a lot of fun uh, to do, and we got up to the to the new building and and moved in. And I had a proper office because my office I didn't have an office. It was a warehouse. It was literally just a it was just a, a warehouse. And so I created a, I took Tuck in the movie Tucker. There was this big curved uh, backdrop that they had. That was the the boardroom of I, I'm not sure. I don't think it was Tucker's office. I think it was mm -hmm. um, the I think it might have been Lloyd Bridge's office. Anyway, there was this big, huge that was done on Masonite. So I took that and I I made that like part of the backdrop of my <laughs> my office. Uh -huh. We had a de found a desk somewhere. I, everything was cast off stuff from right. not not from movies, but for, you know like right. stuff that nobody wanted at ILM because I was closest to ILM. And I had a pickup truck, so I would just see, oh, there's a desk in the garbage. I'll go grab that. <laughs> that was my desk. And so uh, there there's no budget for me to have a you know, right. proper office. So I finally got an office when I went to the archives in, at the ranch and, um, and yeah, then could just continue the organization. We actually had the, the archives actually consisted of not only the facility I was at, but there was two other uh, storage units. And most of the, those storage units had like big stuff and, and stuff in boxes. So in one of the storage units was the sand skiff from Jedi yeah. and a snow, a snow speeder, from uh empire strikes back that was all used for for whatever you know well sand speeder uh this sand skip was used in yuma and then came to island mm -hmm. for the blue screen stuff and eventually at one point in like 89 i think it was it was before we moved to the ranch they decided that they uh were gonna uh, sell this stuff to disney uh and so i had to pack up that well i didn't pack it up I and mean, we i just arranged for them to come and so they took the sand skiff, they took the speed, the snow speeder. Mm -hmm. I think they took some crashed speeder bikes, some broken speeder, but we kept like two of them right. um, that were complete because a lot of stuff was broken up, you know, uh, from filming. And um, there was other stuff. There was like bits and pieces, uh, R2s in various uh, conditions. They were, they were mainly fiberglass, but there was like the, the clear head domes, which is the R3 domes. Right. There was the R4, R5 shape, you know, the different mm -hmm. hexagonal ones gave them all to Disney and some of those are in um, uh, Star Tours and Anaheim. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so I think the, I want to say the snow speeders in front of Star Tours in, in Orlando, I want to say, or is that? It was, yeah, there were, there was actually a speeder bike, I know, yeah. in, in Orlando. 
uh, the the sand skiff and the snow speeder when I was in Florida in Orlando yeah. was on part of that back lot tour that yeah. you would drive around and it sat out there and just rotted away yeah. as far as I understand. I definitely have mm. a picture of five-year-old Brandon in front of uh, the snow speeder. I'm pretty sure. Right. <laughs> yeah. My biggest regret, I never went and sat in it, but it, to be honest, when I saw it, when it was, where it was, first of all, I couldn't get into it because right. it, it was like loaded with stuff. And then it was like in pretty trashy conditions. Yeah. And then and it's like, I don't know what was living in it at that point. So I didn't. I mean, you talking about those tapes, even going back to that, I think, I mean, that's the reason that this book over here is on my shelf, the making of empire strikes back. Cause then, J.W. Rensselaer had a reason to write the the book because of all these new interviews that you kind of rescued from the trash. Well, and what happened with those is, again, it was like I had this like this dictate. Debbie Fine, who was the head of the library at the time, she's head of Lucasfilm Research, uh, was my boss at, at the head of the archives because Judy Niles, who hired me, eventually left. She Judy Niles was like doing special events and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. So I, I fell under the, the, the watch of uh, Debbie Fine. And Debbie... Just that Debbie was a real sweet lady. Unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago, but but she also did really want to have anything to do with the archives. She uh-huh. she just looked at them like a big pain in the neck, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, so um, so the more I could be out of sight, out of mind, the better it was for me, because if I, you know, if I said, oh, we need money for something, she just didn't want to do it. So I was just like r- running my own little independent operation over the archive. Um, and uh so she had this dictate for me to throw out as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So, but I was realizing the value of something like, like that, the manuscript, the Alan Arnold manuscript. And like, I found proof sheets from star Wars and empire and Jedi. And, and I, you know, I just, I, I didn't want to throw that stuff away. So, right. so I, cause what had happened is I sent some boxes up. They said, what do you want? What do you want me to do with these boxes of, it was just papers of, of things. I'll send them to Lucasfilm Legal at the ranch and they'll take care of them. Send them there. And then I find out a little bit later that they just destroyed them. And I'm like, well, I don't want that to happen. You know? <laughs> so so I was trying to hoard as much stuff as possible right. while still making it appeal to appear to Debbie that I'd clean the place up. You know? Right. So I was tucking and hiding stuff away at the archives. When we got the new building built, there was places for that. So a lot of that stuff did get saved. But like the, this box of tapes, I, you know, I, I'm like, they're going to, someone's just going to throw them away because they don't want them. Right. And so I, I, I brought them home, uh-huh. <laughs> one, one to listen to them, continue right. listening to them because I didn't get through all, all of them, two just to, for safekeeping. And I had them all these years. I, they, survived, <laughs> they survived move after move. I moved to Australia with them and right. I moved back from Australia and I still had these tapes. And then I was talking to Jonathan after he wrote, I think, Star Wars, and he told mm-hmm. me he was doing the Empire book. And I and I said, oh, you know, I said, I, <laughs> I said, you know what I happen to have? And uh, I told him, he goes, you're kidding. <laughs> and uh, he says, would you mind if I borrowed them? I said, yeah. I says, I said, I, I, they belong back in the archives. I said, they, they should, they really belong. I said, if you just get me a transcript of them, you know, because they were going to, someone was going to transcribe them. Right. I said, if you could just give me a transcription of them, I'd, that you know i i'd be happy with that i never got the transcription but uh but i did give them back so right. they, they have them but that yeah it, and he thanks me in the book for that yeah so. yeah That's and great. i think i got a i think i got a free copy of the book too. there you go so the the, the transcript was kind of in the book some, some yeah book, right? <laughs> yeah well he used it he said it was it was incredibly valuable i mean as you mentioned like the i love you i know scene is pretty much directly from those tapes and it's it's laid out just like that and it's fascinating to listen to them 
you Crazy. know, to that scene in particular, yeah. because you hear them rehearsing it and right. you hear them, try, you know, coming up with. And there's the, I mean, there's the Apple Books version, like the ebook version of the book, and there he has like the tapes embedded oh, a lot of the he? times, yeah, which is really cool. So, oh, cool. Um, so I can um, pretend that I am I am Don B's listening to these <laughs> tapes. Okay, so we talked briefly again about them, and they've kind of just become like not an obsession is the wrong word, just a, but like like uh, these Panasonic Japanese commercials with George are like probably my favorite Star Wars movie, I think, at this point. <laughs> Going back to that, because you filmed it in the U.S., um, but all of that kind of surrounding it, what was your role besides even, I know you operated R2, and but I, I mean, like, I, you mentioned it casually. <laughs> Again, th- you mentioned casually. They brought back Peter Mayhew and Anthony Daniels to play the, the parts in the, in the shots, and I'd just be curious and, and really interested to hear any other stories you might have um, from those sets. Well, it was the reason I started doing R2 uh, mm-hmm. was the, the very first commercial because the David Schaefer, who was, had been doing, so there's a guy named Ed Breed and he, I think he, Ed was uh, a guy at ILM. I'm not quite sure what his role was. I think he was in, in the maintenance department or something, mm-hmm. but he was an electronics guy and he uh, kind of jack of all trades kind of guy. And he operated R2, I believe he, well, he was doing some appearances right after Jedi. He was around during Jedi. He might've been involved in the, the, shoot where uh luke builds the the um lightsaber and loads it in and mm-hmm. then they walk off to java's palace he might have been involved in that shoot anyway he did appearances then he left lucasfilm and he he uh had a company doing his own thing and he had this young uh, engineer a whiz kid guy named david who then took over doing r2 and dressing anthony uh, for appearances whenever they did. So he did like the Star Tours stuff. And when he was down at Star Tours opening for um, uh, Anaheim, he went and interviewed with the Imagineering department and got a job. <laughs> so I knew David from another company I was working with where we were making uh, designing uh, uh, stuff for Christmas windows in San Francisco. Uh-huh you know, Christmas displays. He, you know, he, he told me what the side job that he does. And, and I said, Oh, I'd love to see R2. I said, that would be cool. So cool. So yeah. he had it one day and I went, and, I went and checked it out. And, it was really <laughs> cool. and then he said, he's leaving to go to this thing. And there, this uh, series of commercials coming up, they need someone to operate R2. Would you be interested in like, right. you know, I met, you know, I had to think about it for less than a second, of course. <laughs> right. And, and so I went and auditioned mm-hmm. for Judy um, and um, and and them. I basically just drove it around to make sure I didn't bump into anything. Right. And um, I got the job, you know. And uh-huh. and so my first day on set was was on at ILM on the main stage, what's called was called the main stage. It's still there. The, the big mm-hmm. stage, uh, thirty two ten studios now operates out of it. And there's George, and there's Anthony Daniels, and there's Peter Mayhew. They didn't bring back. Uh, Dave Prowse, but um, interestingly, we were shooting one of the commercials there, and um, Dave, for some reason, was in town and getting a tour of ILM, and someone was walking out with his helmet, and he's like, hey, that's my helmet, and he, he walked over, and everyone's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and George wasn't there that day, right, right, right. Um, and um, anyway, so, you know, it was like, oh, you know, you know. <laughs> And Tom Tom Bewley became a good friend. He he always played Vader for us, and mm-hmm. 
And Tom was actually one of the uh, these Vaders from Empire Strikes Back, the appearance Vaders. They had three, apparently, three, according to Tom, three Vaders. They had an East Coast Vader, a Midwest Vader, and a West Coast Vader. <laughs> uh-huh. And I, I think the West Coast Vader was Kermit Eller. Right. Um, and I'm not sure who the East Coast Vader was, but the Midwest Vader was Tom Buley. And so he he it put him through college apparently the gig because he would just he'd have the costume in a, in a you know traveling right. anvil case in his in his dorm or his apartment, and you know and on the weekends they would just use it as a table <laughs> and then he'd take it off to uh, an appearance whenever he was going off to an appearance and um, and it was an original costume right. it wasn't he he wore <laughs> he wore a, a prowess costume and so yeah so that was the first day of shooting. That's why I, I had to meet Tony Anthony and uh, and you know learn how to put him in the costume and mm-hmm. and so we did we I, I think we did three or four commercials uh, series that there's the there's one of R two and three PO because uh, it, it was Panasonic so it wasn't just cameras it was computers I think too mm-hmm. so there's a, a C three PO was uh, typing a love letter for. R2D2. Uh-huh. Uh, that was our first thing. And then there was this other one with all the models and props and, co- mm-hmm. um, you know, spread out. And um, George is, is like they're moving George around on a camera crane with it. And then at the end, C3PO is standing there and R2 comes in. And right. got to run, the first time I got to run over George's foot. With <laughs> right. I'm trying to think if there's any other ones because they, they did some they did some stuff with just Chewbacca and George. There was also stills that they shot. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the, the contract went out for three years and, uh, we did a, uh, a series of commercials. It seemed like every six months, maybe a year, mm-hmm. we would do another set of commercials. So the following year, I think it would have been, that was 88, 87, 88, 87. No, that was 87. So the following year, the, uh, we did, um, a series of commercials without George mm-hmm. and we went down to Los Angeles and shot him and, um, because the production company was a Japanese production company. Well, Dentsu of Japan, was, which is a huge PR firm, mm-hmm. uh, Dentsu uh, produced them. And their production company, which was all Japanese, because we had a Japanese director, a Japanese assistant director. He didn't speak very much English, which was fun. He was really wild guy, really crazy, really like, ah, you know. But he had this uh, lady uh, assistant director who was this tra- uh, acted as his translator as well. Mm-hmm. But you could always tell that she wasn't completely translating what, <laughs> what was said, because, you know, we would say something to her and, you know, it was like, you know, a one minute paragraph of us talking and she would just go over and say like three words in Japanese. <laughs> it's like, we know something's getting lost. in translation. Right. Um, and um, so, uh, yeah, so we went to LA and shot some stuff there and that was with Peter. That was actually when I, Peter and I got to, because although I met him on the first commercial, we didn't really do anything together. Right. So they sent, they brought us down to uh, LA. He was still living in England at the time. Mm-hmm. He wasn't married to Angie at that point. Um, and they flew, flew him over from England and they, they had, they want, they wanted me to come down because they, it, the scenes featured R2 and, and Chewie and they had some technical questions that they wanted uh, answered. And, and I remember I had to fly down the day before, which is no big deal for me, but right. we, they drove us to the, they met us at the, at the hotel, drove us to the production offices. And we literally sat in this meeting for like a half hour and asked us a few questions and we, you know, told them our opinion and they said, okay, that's it. That's all we need. And it's like, really, they couldn't, we couldn't have done that on a telephone call. (laughs) 
They wanted to, yeah, I, th- I think they just wanted, you know, they just were being. So there's a, now it's 11 o'clock in the morning and Peter and I have nothing to do, right? <laughs> and so they said, they well, they have a driver and he, they'd be happy to, you know, have him drive us and, you know, go anywhere in L.A. we'd want with him. Uh-huh. So Peter's like, let's go to Venice Beach. <laughs> so so they drove us to Venice Beach and the three of us were, you know, walking along and Peter's telling me these stories. Then we ended up back at the bar in the hotel uh-huh. at two o'clock in the afternoon drinking um and uh and boy peter could drink you know <laughs> uh, and he's telling me these stories now mind you this is bef- this is five years or so at, after the end of return of the jedi right. he hasn't been he hasn't done any of this you know hasn't been interviewed hasn't right that it's gone you know that that's that part of his life is done was done right. and over with and um and so he just had i had all these unfiltered <laughs> stories right of of what he was you know the filming was like and you know all the stories that he ultimately told over and over and over right. at conventions and with fans i got to hear you know <laughs> as sitting at a bar and telling yeah. me the stories and we had a great time we had a great, you know we really bonded we had a great time in la you know, went out to dinner a lot of time, a lot, you know, we were there three or four times. We also had two little people with us. Uh, they're actually from Northern California, mm-hmm. Margarita Fernandez and Nikki Botello. Nikki is Nikki. Is, yeah. Yeah. Nikki we interviewed her. She's great. Yeah. She's, she's insane. She's, she's the best. <laughs> she was only like 19 years old when I met her. And uh, yeah, so she was, she would, she always would play uh, Wicket. Mm-hmm. Uh, she would, she, and did you know that she and work dated for a little bit? Oh, she didn't uh, mention that when we talked to her. She did yeah. not mention that. <laughs> she that's uh, she told me that at the time, um, and uh, but she she got to play. She played Wicket's character always because she was the right uh, proportions right. and height for him. And then Margarita Fernandez was actually in Jedi, mm-hmm. and she had continued on doing a lot of stuff. Uh, she's in Batman, the one with uh, Danny DeVito. She's a penguin right. in whatever. Batman movie that is I think she even did some ET stuff either mm-hmm. I think possibly as a commercial and she was a she was a real uh, uh fireball too uh, mm-hmm. they're they're a lot of fun to hang around with and we you know the we were su- quite a sight to go out you know <laughs> yeah seven foot two Peter and three foot six Margarita and you know three foot eight whatever uh Nikki and 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 me six feet tall, <laughs> and uh, you know we 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 were quite a sight going out together. Yeah, so we did that, and then and then they did a series of commercials with Sparky the robot, right. which was designed by Ralph McQuarrie right. and uh, built by the ILM model slash creature shop. Mm-hmm. And it was so funny because when they they wanted to introduce Sparky with George and R two D two. And R2 looked like this old, you know, rattle can of, you know, Model T, you know, right. and because here's here's Sparky, which is all this beautiful, you know, um, it formed uh, plexiglass and, mm-hmm. you know, intricate mechanisms and everything. And I was just so afraid that one day <laughs> that, you know, when we were because we had to do a scene where Sparky was going forward and they wanted R2 to circle around him. Uh-huh. And I was like, I'm just going to, because R2 is a big, big, heavy machine. Right. I just thought, I'm going to just wipe this thing out. You know, <laughs> but, and um, so we did, yeah, we did those series of commercials. I'm trying to think if I was involved in the other one. There, there was other ones. There was like some, and I've never, I don't remember ever seeing again. There was a one, they made a, a half scale Jabba because the original Jabba didn't get sent over from, mm-hmm. from London. But what they did send over was a, a Jabba's eyes and his arms. Wow. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the only thing that was survived or that they could fit in the bag or whatever. Right. And um, and a lot of people didn't realize, at least I didn't at the time. Art Charlie had a had a tattoo on right. his arm. And um, so they created a guy named Tony Hudson and a couple other sculptors sculpted this uh, really great half scale Java puppet mm-hmm. that that they used. And Java was in uh, uh, it was a for a, a Panasonic radio or CD player, I think it was. And it's playing um, some Ray Charles song, some sad Ray Charles song. Uh-huh. And, uh, and Job is sitting there like crying, you know, he's like just blubbering. And, and um, so they, they did that one. So, but I've never seen, I, I haven't seen, yeah, I saw it at the time, but I've, right. I've never, I don't see it. Uh, and then, and then we did another series of commercials a few years after that, where I played a stormtrooper. It's, it's, it's one of the more bizarre ones. It's the one where uh, he's on a, the modern picture scroll where he's he holds a modern picture scroll and then he's on a a boat with some stormtroopers you know and that's me uh nelson hall and tony summers uh, and Mo- tony was a model maker and um and the, the three of us on on this it was actually there was no boat we were on just on a green a blue screen stage and it, that, that's one of the more bizarre <laughs> of the of the commercials we like watched it and was like i don't understand what's going on in this <laughs> That's great. Uh, so, the, but yeah, they were they were loads of fun. They were loads of fun to do. No, incredible. I I didn't know what to expect if, when I asked you if you had more uh, stories, and you just blew blew me away. Because um, <laughs> I mean, you're talking all about my eBay searches, right? I'm trying to get the Sparky toy they made. Oh they, yeah, they have right. it, and you can get for 150 dollars. I'm like, one of these days, I'm just gonna like get it. You know, I'm just gonna buy it. I'm, I'm curious. I, I don't know whatever happened to Sparky. You know, the actual mm-hmm. robot because it didn't wind up in the archives. It was really? I see. Recall there was a stand-in one that was floating around in ILM for a while. So that, mm-hmm. I, but I, I don't know what actually happened to the actual mechanical. One. Find Sparky. Where is he? Yeah. Yeah. Somebody has him. I, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm because you've done so much. And we, again, the, the interview three years ago goes into the incredible things you did. And so I feel dumb asking these like stupid things. But I know that you um, there's the Tom. Uh, what's his name? Tom Zimbaroff, the photographer, oh, yeah. did the photo shoot. And I have a shirt of that as well uh, of it's and everyone listening knows. It. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> for, <laughs> uh, it's the uh, for the people listening. Uh, it's the photo of George and Yoda with the beautiful blue star background and super goofy. And then there's one of him with with a, a funny mustache and, and glasses as well. And you were there. And as you just showed me, if you cannot if you not see, uh, you also have the same picture with the same pose. Uh, I mean, that was a was a day, but it has kind of become an infamous photo, so to speak. Like, what was what was even the the point, quote unquote, of of that shoot? You know, I'm not sure why he he got he did the shoot in the first place. If it was for Tom was is a local photographer in San Francisco. I didn't know of him until mm-hmm. the shoot came along, and um, we'd get these odd requests. You know, for you know, for, I'd get a request from PR to go. You know, someone's coming over. Can you give them a tour of the archives? A lot of times, I didn't know who they were. You know, mm-hmm. like I, the head of Kenneth Feld, who's the head of Ringing Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. Uh-huh. I gave a tour from, it was the most bizarre thing. He pulls up in a limousine. He says, it's a real little guy, you know? And I gave him a tour and, and you know, I, I had like, 
I had different levels. I had 25 cent tour, the 50 cent tour, the dollar tour, you know, uh-huh. I think he got the, I, he got the 15 cent tour because uh-huh. he just kind of came in very business like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. and then he was gone. <laughs> and, and, uh, I, I gave Daryl Hannah a tour one time. Uh-huh. She was shooting memoirs of invisible man. So anyway, Tom, I get this thing to, to a photographer once is going to do a photo shoot and wants to come by the archives and look at props and, you know, how he could use it. And so he, he came over. I don't, I don't remember exactly details, but I'm sure, he, you know, he was asking like what costume bits, you know, what, what could we, because it's for George. And he, it's, he, he just, he, the thing I think recently went viral because he posted something on a, on a forum or something mm-hmm. about the day of shooting. It was a couple of years ago, I think. And, and he posted that picture of him, the George with the goofy glasses on. Uh-huh. And, um, and so it, it like took off again. It was so funny. And, and Tom and I reconnected because of that, because uh-huh. he, I read the article and he got something, he got some things wrong in it. And <laughs> one of them was that he, he got, he went to the archives and drove the stuff to the ranch. Well, I would have never let him you know, <laughs> put stuff in his car and drove it to the ranch. Right. As I recall, he came to the archives. We, he picked some stuff out and I then loaded it up in a car and, and delivered it to the ranch the next day or whenever, right. whenever the shoot was. And then I was there to help it. And we set it up. I remember exactly where we set up in the main house of the, of, uh, on Skywalker ranch is this like living room. It's a beautiful mm. room. And at Christmas time, they put the Christmas tree up there. It's got a fireplace, beautiful Mormon Rockwell paintings hanging right. all over the room. And we set up right there. Um, he set up that backdrop and, and he, the Yoda was one of them. Uh, but he also had, um, the the cloak for uh, the emperor uh-huh. um, which i believe the that picture is out but the other thing that i don't think it has ever been out was he had uh, c3po's hands and he and he and and there's a, so there's pictures of george like you know with his hand to oh his my God. chin right with c3po's hand on it was interesting because i you know those are pretty small things and they're 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 tight right but george's hand was small enough to fit into it which was good and so uh yeah so we did those and and the reason i have a picture with yoda was he needed a stand-in to to test the lighting so he he did that and um it was a polaroid and he Mm -hmm. and then i asked him to sign it and he signed it yeah and and then when uh, when we reconnected just a couple years ago I told, I, I think I sent him a picture of it, a scan yeah. of it. He says, oh, you know, I still got the, I've still got the original negatives. He says, if you want, come on. <laughs> you, when next time you're in San Francisco, come to the right. my studio and I'll, I'll, I'll give you a, 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 you know, a proper copy. I haven't done that yet. The COVID hit. Right. Know? Yeah. Stuff has been but, going on this year. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, yeah, so that, that's what it was. It was just this little weird little like hour with George trying on the emperor's cloak and <laughs> posing with Yoda and, and C-3PO hands. I'm trying to think of the, I think that was just the three things that we did. I mean, that's, that's enough of a story. That's incredible. Okay. So we've talked about some of the dumb stuff. We got it out of the way because all, again, incredible. Um, one of the things, I don't know if you have this yet. Um, this is the Star Wars archives um, from Tashin that just came out. It's this big. No, I, I've seen it. Uh, I, and I, the, um, I saw the, the, the prequel one, the prequel era one. Right. So this is, yeah, this is the prequels. And what it's not just prequels because at the beginning it goes through kind of what you know the digital technology was evolving to get to the prequels and so it has a special edition section which is incredible and there are photos in here of you that I'd never seen before and I'd like to open it and show you and okay. then and then we can discuss there's I mean, one is is um, it's just like alternate shots but there's this one I'm gonna try to position it because it's a huge book 
but it's this one of you guys uh, practicing beforehand as the fan. I don't know if you can see that or the oh yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but the overhead shot. Yeah. So, so if you if you notice, okay, so the right in front of me, there's a woman in white with black pants. Mm-hmm. That's my wife, <laughs> and uh, she stood in for uh, the the guy with the big mouth. Uh-huh. And um, and then the guy that's rehearsing with me is a guy named Blake Tucker. Now Nelson Hall played the Rodian right when we shot it, but on that was on Friday, whatever July in '96, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And Nelson was out of town, so he couldn't be there. So we brought in Blake, and he was Nelson's stand-in, so that we could rehearse and come up with you know find out what the moves were. And then, and then on Monday when we shot, so that was from Friday. And then on Monday when mm-hmm. we shot, Nelson showed up and I had to go to, I had to go to his house on Sunday night with a tape of the song and, and give him the routine that we had worked out so that we had, we were ready to go. So I love it. So Blake, it's funny because the, the three dancers had, uh, they were from the, the Smuin Ballet, San, mm-hmm. the, the San Francisco Ballet Company. And Michael Smuin, who was re- well-known, very renowned in San Francisco area and in the ballet world, was there. He was a choreographer for them. So they had this whole routine worked out and right. all this great stuff. And and then there was me and Blake, you know. <laughs> so, so and we were like, we got to do something. So, so we worked out our own routine. So all the choreography you see in there was was created by me and Blake. (laughs) Look at that. I love it. Uh, See, I guess going to the actual shooting of these special edition scenes, I'm just very interested in like how it was happening because it started off less involved. Obviously it was just to add in a couple scenes, but then as, especially with the Hoth Wampa and then the Jedi rock sequence, it became a little more involved, right? Building sets and and really kind of making sure that it was, it was true and and faithful to what was on the screen originally. Uh, Where was that all being shot and kind of like, what was that process? And of course you being part of the archives and and dealing with all of that, how were you kind of involved trying to make it match at least screen accurately? Well, because we had, you know, uh, we had the original costume, so that wasn't much of a problem. Um, The, uh, it was all done at ILM. It was mm-hmm. all shot at ILM. Like I said, that was on the main stage, uh, mm-hmm. the same main stage that we shot my first commercial with R2 and, <laughs> right. and Anthony Daniels and George. The, it did. You're right. It definitely did start out small. It just was George was going to do a couple fixes for Star Wars, right. and then he was going to do this. Then he was going to, you know, he added the Jabba se- sequence, and um, and then what would happen is John Knoll would come up to the archives. I'd get a call from him. He was get, was he a super? I don't think he was a supervisor maybe he was uh he, he you know he had started out as like a effects cameraman or something mm-hmm. like that you know he was in the meantime in in his spare time me and his brother were writing this little program called photoshop never heard um, of it, yeah. yeah i know it'll never go anywhere i told <laughs> him <"This> is us. <laughs> what a waste of time you're gonna do anyway um he would come up and um you call me and say, oh, he wants to come up and photograph X-Wings or photograph mm-hmm. Y-Wings because they were doing the digital stuff. So I'd pull him out and he'd set up, you know, uh, set up his camera and do a bunch of photo- photographs, go back and, and do the uh, digital modeling. I think he did all of it himself. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it was small like that. And then all of a sudden then they want to do Empire. And then they had the sequence, you know, they, they were doing all these digital uh, cutout windows of Bespin, right. you know, where they were putting the backgrounds in. And then along with that, they wanted to put more extras walking around. And I got to audition for an extra and um, doing doing that. And 
the audition consisted of uh, it was the cat it was robin gerlin she's uh-huh. the casting director for episode one and all well, the prequels in general and um and it was me and several other people came in and and we had this we, we had to listen to that you know lando saying the cloud city is being evacuated mm-hmm. so we had to walk in like we're walking in and hear it and stop and be concerned and then have to rush out and that was that was our and i got the part and i did get the part there you go you know i could have been you know could have been the next career stepping thing but um <laughs> They kept delaying the shoot, and I was going off to um, to Australia mm-hmm. uh, to my wife's Australian. We were going off to Australia for the, for the holidays, and so I they were going to shoot it when I was gone. So I had a, I had a, I had a pass, so I didn't get that. But um, we did. So yeah, there there was it's building slowly, uh, and 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 all of a sudden, then we'd hear, oh, they're going to do this whole sequence. They're going to build a set, and, mm-hmm. and they're they're making a wampa uh, suit right. and. They use, they looked at the Wampa puppet because the original Wampa suit is you know that Stuart Freeborn was didn't, was never used or was barely used in the movie, um, and um, and it looked nothing like the little puppet that John Berg and Phil Tippett had made. That, right. And that puppet's really small; it's a hand puppet. You know, the face right. face is only about you know six inches, and it was just they shot in the, in the behind the stage at ILM and just went. So they use that for reference. So I would constantly be getting calls for references. So Tom Kennedy, who was the effects producer at ILM, I knew uh, because he was constantly coming up and getting stuff uh, or asking for stuff. He um, uh, one day was saying there uh, these shoots with you know the different characters and costumes and and I just mentioned I said well you know I I've done the stormtroopers for appearances and some a couple of these commercials and stuff. And I know, you know, I, I can get people that you need because a lot of times it wasn't just one, maybe six or something. But So that's how I got to be Stormtroop, you know, a bunch right. of Stormtroop. I got, it got so much that Dave Carson, who was the effects supervisor, finally banned me and Nelson Hall from being in it anymore. <laughs> There's got to be other people that could fit in these costumes. Right. you got to let other people do this. <laughs> and then uh, he came this one day and, he, you know, they're, they're putting together this big, the Jabba's thing and they want one of the band members and Greedo from Star Wars and one of the band members from Star Wars and I said well Greedo doesn't exist anymore you know we don't, or we don't have him we never got right. him from Stuart Freeborn and I'm sure if he still existed at that point it would, it would have been not usable I said but I do know where I can get the uh, Cantina band members from and I knew of several sources actually Bob Burns who's a big collector in Los Angeles has a lot of stuff from those guys he was really good friends with rick baker and mm-hmm. all those guys and he has a huge collection of, of stuff and he had one but his wasn't in the best of condition so i know that doug beswick who sculpted the right. mask originally had one so i was able to get a hold of doug i didn't know doug but i've got his number i got a hold right. of him and he let us have his uh, for a small fee right. and um and and then richard miller one of the ilm sculptors sculpted mm-hmm. the greedo uh, the Rodian. But I told Tom, I said, I know how I can get a hold of one of these masks, but you're going to have to let me play. <laughs> so he, he says, sure, no problem. So, right. so I got cast in, as, as the, that character. Yeah. Like I said, we, we went down there on Friday for a rehearsal setup day, the ILM stage and model shop built the stage, all the sets, they were all mm-hmm. done right at ILM. And um, they built, that whole thing we, we pulled the 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 hansel and carbonite um mm-hmm. you know that's in the background there right. they they made that big taiko drum 
mm-hmm. and they got two the guys beaten on those drums were actual taiko drummers from a club in San Francisco. Right. And like I said, the girls, the uh, dancers were from the local ballet company. I always felt sorry for the Lin Mi, I think was her name. Uh, uh, she, uh, she's the one, the blue, um, mm-hmm. uh, with the tentacles, Twilight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, because Ian McCaig told me a story that, and I, and it's funny cause I, I remember seeing this, Ian was already working on the, on the prequels, uh, at Doug Chang, the whole art department was already there, but they tasked them with doing some stuff at the last minute for, for this. So they wanted new character design. So those three girls, uh, were all new character designs that yeah. they came up with. And he went home and his daughter was relatively young at that point. And he said, I, I want you to come up with a costume for this one uh-huh. character. I don't know if you ever heard the story, but uh-uh. he, she, she took her Barbie doll with, uh, with electrical tape and wrapped it. Uh-huh. And then he took that, th- that was the design. Uh-huh. And he took that and he, he drew a picture of it. And that's, that became that character's costume. And and she yeah she, poor girl that's that's all she wore was this you know, right. leather straps all over, and she also had um, they had, they had spray painted she had because uh, she was doing point uh, so they had spray painted her leather toe shoes mm. it, uh, to be blue I guess it was and uh, whatever her skin color was and um, because it they didn't breathe like they normally do they didn't stretch her. Oh, no. She at one point she had to pull her shoes off later in the day, and her, her toes were just bloody. I mean, oh my god, she just she was just you know, I think in a lot of pain as well. So I felt really bad for her. She had the probably the easiest costume, it was a really hot day, so she, right. she was probably the most comfortable from that standpoint, right? But uh, the one that was really was really horrible was the other dancer that was in the full Rodian costume, mm, yeah, she, she was like head <laughs> to toe and some, right. you know, covered. But yeah, she she was unfortunately her, her toes were little bloody stumps. Oh my gosh. So, um, but yeah, it, it was a really really hot day. Really, but it was fun. It was really cool. You know, George was was in true form that day. He directed it. Yeah. Um, as uh, a lot of mostly, I think uh, he he was around for when we did the Wampa too. Mm-hmm. Howie Weed played the Wampa, and I was just providing stage support for Howie so he didn't die. Right. Dave Carson was was really directing it, but George came by and was watching and and and, and changed a couple of things that Dave was suggesting how we do. And then, right. Uh, how he was was trying to do more kind of like lumbering, uh, or no, actually was uh, how he was trying to. They were directing him to be more Harryhausen, I think, mm. where you know stand up and like you know walk with his shoulders back and. And, and George is like, no, no, he's, he's lonely. He's like, <laughs> so it's kind of different direction points there, but, but they shot that there, there was a, 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 a little building that was called, we call it a cookie bay because at one point unknown Jerome's, which is a cookie company mm-hmm. used to be in that bay. And then when they moved out, ILM moved in and mm-hmm. we used it as a little shooting stage. So a bunch of stuff was shot there. And so that set was set up in, in that, in that uh, uh, area, and uh, Danny Wagner was one of the model shop guys, and is now a makeup artist in LA. He, as a, a fan made thing, he made a, the head of a tauntaun, mm-hmm. and he brought it in, and and it's sitting in the background. It's sitting covered in snow back there. Uh-huh. Um, the, I think that set was done with foil, was uh-huh. was just crinkled tin foil all over. Wow. Um, yeah. So, and then, uh, like I said, then I think that one of the last 
no, it couldn't have been the last thing we shot for that. It was, uh, so it was like July, I seem to recall, that we shot the Jedi Rocks thing. I just know it was really, really, really hot. <laughs> uh-huh. And they didn't have any air conditioning, so we were all dying. But um, I love it. Oh, incredible. There was a there was another another interesting shoot that the two worlds collided. Um, Star Trek First Contact had to do a big green screen shoot where it when you know in the movie the Borg are taking over the Enterprise and right. and and uh, is it I think Worf, Picard, and another guy that gets killed walk out onto the onto the the big uh, dish and they're and. And so they needed a green screen of those guys walking from a, a high altitude. So the only way to do it, they could do it. They didn't have, they couldn't light it uh, indoors because it was such a big area. Uh, uh, well, they, I'm sorry, they, they couldn't get up high enough with, with such a big area. So they decided to do it outside at night. Mm-hmm. So they waited till the lights went down, the sun went down so they could light it themselves. And they, they did the shot. They wanted to do the shot. Well, Lucasfilm, uh, the Star Wars team, found out that they were doing this big blue screen shoot, green screen, blue screen, uh, with from a high altitude of guys walking on a, on a green screen. And they thought, well, wait, we could piggyback on the shoot. And it's it, so they wanted to shoot stormtroopers walking to the Vader <laughs> shuttle. So, um, so there was this night where there was extras <laughs> dressed up in Star Trek costumes and us dressed up in stormtrooper costumes and then the star trek guys got done they walked (laughs) off and the stormtroopers came in and and did their shots oh i love it i love it oh man i mean again uh listen to the first part of our interview from three years ago to hear kind of the behind the scenes of how mr b's got involved in the film industry and special editions and every part that you've played and i think i think we discussed i think you're in every single um of the first six star wars movies in some in some form except for episode Four? Uh, no, episode five. Epi- episodes. Uh, sorry, no, uh, I'm not in episode three. Uh, You're not in episode three. In, oh, but you, but Sith. you controlled, you controlled but R2 controlled for episode R2, three, yeah. right? So but we'll I, I've, I've got, I've got a part in every one of the. Yes, the, yes, because yeah, you have Audrey's mechanic, yeah, 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 yeah. We count those, and again, I, I said it three years ago. We count special editions here at Talking Me ninety four as. as <laughs> As Star Wars. So that's enough about me gushing and asking you dumb questions about 20 years ago. Uh, the last time we talked, Keep the Gaslight Burning was on its film festival tour, and you had sent me a screener link, and I was able to watch it and, and gush a little bit about it. But now people can watch it on Amazon Amazon, Prime. Amazon Prime. Well, in the U.S. and the U.K., yes. Yeah. Yes, which, you know, hopefully hopefully people can check that out if they hadn't yet, um, because it's still, still super cool. And then, of course... Um, one of your compatriots in the prequels, especially with R2-D2, was the great Grant Amahara, who passed away. And I know that you've been very involved with the foundation that's been created in his memory, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and how people could get involved if they wanted to, whether donation or otherwise. Yeah, we so, yeah, Grant passed away, unfortunately, in July. And on October 23rd, which was would have been his 50th birthday, we, um, early, obviously, right shortly after he passed away, his, his mom contacted uh, several of us close mm-hmm. friends that had been friends with him throughout various points in his life mm-hmm. and um, uh, asked us to uh, help form a foundation that so we could carry on in his honor and so we got together and there's seven of us total including Gr- Carolyn Grant's mom and uh, it's myself my wife Anna 
uh, Ed and Koya. Ed is Ed used to work for LucasArts and uh, and was Grant's roommate at USC. And Koya is Ed's wife, and she's a sound editor at uh, Skywalker Sound. Mm-hmm. We've got Iwana, who is uh, one of Grant's former girlfriends and uh, was very integral in his life uh, during the period that we all knew each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we first met, I should say. And and then there's Fawn Davis, who uh, mm-hmm. is a fellow model maker and uh, he has a company down in Los Angeles called Fonco. And right. Grant had a shop in Fawn's studio. And so the seven of us got together and formed uh, starting in August. Uh, we still haven't got our, our IRS paperwork all the uh-huh. way in through yet. Uh, so we're not officially a nonprofit yet. But uh, we decided very early on that we wanted to call it a STEAM uh, foundation. Mm-hmm. STEAM standing for uh, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. Um, mm-hmm. And because um, arts were, was, whilst the, the STEM aspect of it was very important to grant, arts was equally important. And so we launched it, like I said, officially launched it, announced it to the world on October 23rd. And, and the response has been overwhelming. We got, mm-hmm. we were not only inundated with, with uh, donations, but, uh, but, um, just lovely, lovely messages of, mm. of support and how much Grant meant to people. For me, Grant was, you know, he was like my little brother mm-hmm. in that he was, uh, I, I knew him, he, I, I, I met him when he was 22 or something like that, 23 years old when I first met him. So he was relatively young. Um, and, um, and so I kind of knew him before. And once he moved to L.A. and, and uh, after Mythbusters was over and he was he moved to Los Angeles, not so much we lost touch, but we didn't see each other as much. And 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 so seeing the seeing him and Adam and Tori all and 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 Jamie, all who people I'd worked with over the years, seeing him on television was just a novelty to me. Right. But I never really realized how much that show meant to so many people, right. and particularly for Grant, how much he meant to so many people. Uh, I heard so many, so many people from uh, so many from uh, uh, other Asian uh, mm-hmm. people that that were just just uh, felt uh, what a role model. Uh, girls, women now that that you know looked up to the show and him in particular is a because he was the only real engineer on that show right. he was the only one with that actually was qualified to do some of the stuff <laughs> that they were right. doing um so um so he meant a lot to so many people and um so it was really important for us to carry on what uh what he I, what we think he would have liked in his honor um, we, we don't, you know, as far as how to help right now, you know, donations are always helpful. I know it's a tough time for a lot of people. We actually had two donation threads going. We had this one for the foundation, but we also have, and it's, it hasn't quite hit its goal right now, but, uh, a classmate of grants from USC, a guy named Wade Bick, mm-hmm. um, started a, a, a fundraiser through USC, through the USC Alumni Association, to name uh, a study lounge in Grant's oh. honor at USC. Mm-hmm. So through the engineering department at USC. And so a lot of people go, well, USC is an expense, you know, there's it's expensive to go there. They got the money. Well, th- what they do is that they, the, fu- the money that they get, 100% of it goes to specific school that funds underprivileged and underserved youth K through 12 in the Los Angeles area. Oh. So all that money that's being raised for that will go directly to those programs. So, oh. uh, which is, which is great. So we were able with our donations already so far, we were able to fund uh, uh, a bunch of um, remote 
use toolkits for uh, a Richmond High, Richmond High in California here, mm-hmm. robotics program. So it, when in when Grant was still at ILM, he was a mentor to this this robotics program at Richmond High, and they went on to do all sorts of competitions and mm-hmm. win awards and stuff. And the and the robotics team is still going strong. And matter of fact, one of the guy that's running the program right now was one of Grant students wow. from back then. Mm. So he stayed with it for all these years. So uh, they were the first ones we were able to fund with. Uh, because of COVID, they can't do their competitions. They can't get together and do their um, their get-togethers and do their builds, but they're doing remote builds. So we were able to fund uh, remote toolkits for, for 20 That's of the great. students. So yeah, so it's, it's we're hoping, we've got more plans right now. We, you know, we're still We're still trying to, uh, right. trying to get get up to speed with what we want to do with it and we've got a bunch of ideas in there that we'll be announcing this year there's going to be actually a, uh, a, a tease that there's there's going to be a, a a really fun fundraiser that i think a lot of people will be interested in coming later this year so wonderful and i'll put the link i think it's grant foundation.org uh, i'll put the link to that in in the show notes as well as the usc donation that you mentioned as well because like you said grant was a, a huge inspiration to me just growing up with myth, MythBusters, that kind of generation of like oh this is something you can do and this is like and you can have fun doing it right know? exactly and what, what was always fun about those guys too, Adam in particular and Grant, uh, two of them, so, uh, the other ones as well, but uh, not Jamie maybe, but the other ones were, they really embraced their nerdum, right. nerddom, their geekdom, you know, and uh, they, they made it okay to be, you know, to be like that. And they, yeah. they were having fun doing it. And I think that that was a really positive things on so many levels. 100%. Well, uh, Mr. Bees, thank you for coming back on and thank you for agreeing to come on the show three years ago My when there was, there was nothing going on. <laughs> Because uh, it really has meant a lot. And um, this has been just a, a huge joy to be able to reconnect and, and hear more of your stories. I could I could keep you on for another couple hours, but we'll we'll regroup in three more years. And, uh, <laughs> and you the 200th show. We'll yeah. do the 200th show. Yes, exactly. Uh, but thank you very, very much. My pleasure. Good luck with the show. Thank you again to Mr. Beast for coming back on the show and, as I mentioned, taking a chance on this little podcast 93 episodes ago. And, of course, his stories are just the best, in case you can't tell by my reactions. Links are in the show notes for Keep the Gaslight Burning, now streaming on Amazon Prime, as well as the Grant Imahara Steam Foundation. Next week, episode 99, is with ILM legend David Carson, who was mentioned several times in this episode, actually. So, until next week, stay tuned... Leave that five-star review and may the force be with you.